Well, we turn for our reading from the Word of God to the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 4, and we begin our reading this evening at verse 18. Verse 17 verses uh, of Exodus 4 give us the account of the Lord meeting with Moses uh, at the burning bush uh, at Mount Horeb. And so uh, the Lord has given uh, Moses his commission to go back to Egypt and to bring the Israelites out and lead them to the promised land. So Exodus 4, verse 18. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, Let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. There often comes a point in doing the Lord's work When our responsibility is simply to get on with the job. Of course, we're to rely on the Lord's grace and the Lord's enabling. But when we've counted the cost, when if we have excuses, they have been answered and they've been dealt with, when we have laid our plans and made our preparations as carefully as possible, then simply our responsibility is to do what the Lord requires of us, to get on with the job. And that really is the point that Moses has reached at the end of the revelation that God gave him at the burning bush. The Lord has dealt with Moses' excuses uh, graciously and gently, And now the point has come when Moses is to get on with the task that God has given him. 
And so this evening we're looking at the second half of Exodus chapter 4 to 18 to 31, back to Egypt. Back to Egypt. Here is what follows from that revelation of the Lord at the burning bush. And the first thing we see very clearly in these verses is a divine mandate, because that is what Moses is going with as he returns to Egypt, a divine mandate. The appearance of God, that the theophany at the burning bush is over. Moses had met with the angel of the Lord. And as we saw, really, the angel of the Lord is God himself. Most likely the, uh, the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Moses met with the Lord. Uh, and I'm sure that experience uh, would stay with Moses for the rest of his life. He would never forget that meeting with God at the burning bush. How could he? It would be with him for the remainder of his days, another 40 years. Remember, uh, Moses is 80 at this point. Uh, 40 years growing up in Egypt, uh, 40 years in Midian, and they're going to be 40 years leading Israel. It's nice and neat uh, in the way in which God's providence arranged uh, Moses' life. Still 40 years ahead of him. And no doubt this experience would mark him for the rest of his life. There are those times uh, in our lives, aren't there, in God's dealings with us, where we'd say afterwards we were never the same. Uh, Something marks us, touches us, changes us. And no doubt that was the case uh, for Moses. Uh, But not even for Moses uh, can experiences like that be the constant path of his life. Uh, He is not every day, as it were, going to experience an encounter, as it were, face to face with the living God. Uh, The Lord is not going to give a constant supply of these dramatic spiritual experiences. There will be many of them, of course, and particularly later in leading Israel, the Lord met with Moses face to face regularly. Uh, But that isn't the day in, day out pattern, even of the life of a man like Moses. Now he has to get on with the work that God has assigned to him. Not looking for more dramatic meetings with God, more burning bushes along the way to Egypt. But he's simply to fulfill the task that the Lord has laid upon him. Moses, as it were, comes back down to earth after the meeting at the burning bush. He has to get on with Uh, the difficulties of serving God in a fallen world, working with fallen people. Uh, The Israelites uh, will drive Moses almost to distraction, to his limit and beyond at times. And of course, he has to deal with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so there are many difficulties ahead of him. Uh, It is uh, a big task that God has given him. But now he simply has to start down the road to Egypt and get on with doing the Lord's work. And surely to a significant degree we can identify with that. Uh, We're not called uh, to be the leaders of a nation. We're not called uh, to the kind of work that Moses was given. But we're the Lord's disciples by his grace. Uh, And now we are in the age when God's revelation is complete. Uh, We have the scriptures and they're not being added to. 
Uh, We don't uh, meet with God at burning bushes or any of these uh, dramatic experiences. But there are, of course, times in our Christian experience when we do know the Lord uh, close to us. Times when perhaps we're particularly uplifted, uh, filled with an awareness of God's uh, grace to us. Those are important times. We should thank God for those high points in our Christian experience. But we are not to be constantly seeking spiritual highs. Because there are Christians, sadly, who do try to live their Christian life like that. Uh, From one high point to another to another, and that's how they live. And they're always seeking that kind of, uh, of dramatic spiritual uplift. And that is a very dangerous path uh, for Christians to try to follow. Because if we're living from one high to the next spiritually, well, it makes us uh, very vulnerable to our fluctuating feelings. What if today we feel in a high and tomorrow we don't? And then we ask, well, maybe the Lord's forsaken us. Maybe, maybe I'm not even a Christian because I don't feel high today. And there are Christians who are up and down and up and down like that, a kind of spiritual roller coaster. And it's not God who's put them in that roller coaster. It's themselves because they're always looking for the highs. And God hasn't promised that our Christian life will be like that at all. And of course, Uh, For those who live in that way and looking for the dramatic experiences, they are also wide open to false promises of these experiences. If you do this, if you believe that, if you follow this particular path, then that will give you the spiritual lift that you're looking for. And if that doesn't work, they're looking for something else. And so they can become almost spiritual wanderers, always looking for something dramatic, some spiritual high, looking for things God has not promised them. And that leads to all kinds of spiritual problems for Christians who try to live like that. Most of our Christian life is very ordinary and very mundane. Most of Moses' work was very mundane. And that is how it is for the Lord's people in this world. When he does give us the times of spiritual uplift, we praise him for them. But we don't think we're going to live up on that plane all the time. Uh, And if we try to, we're setting ourselves up for problems. So Moses is down to earth once again. And yet God is so gracious You see that again and again here in Exodus chapter 4. God is so gentle and gracious with Moses. More assurance for him. As if he didn't have enough. All the men who wanted to kill you are dead. Verse 19. And that maybe suggests that Moses was, was starting to feel fear going back to Egypt. Maybe some of them will be waiting for him there. Maybe they'll remember how he killed the Egyptian. And so perhaps there is a fear beginning to creep into Moses' heart. God reassures him, allays his fears. It's only 40 years after all. Moses is going back, uh, as he says to his father-in-law, to my own people 
uh, to see if any of them are still alive. And when you look at genealogies and the length of lives that are recorded, uh, his father, uh, Amram, actually was still alive uh, and would be for a few years yet after Moses got back to Egypt. So, in fact, his father was alive. Maybe his mother, we don't know uh, that. But there could have been Egyptians who would remember. God reassures him. But when all the reassurances given, all the promises, go back to Egypt. Get on with the work you have been given. And so Moses is going with a divine mandate. He's going with the Lord's command, and he's going, we're told, with the staff of God. He has literally in his hand something that reminds him, the Lord is with you. And whenever he held uh, that staff, he'd remember how God uh, would use it to perform the miracles, how it was a visible token that God was with him, and he had everything he needed He's going with a divine mandate to do the Lord's work, to get on with it. As we as disciples of the Lord are to get on with the work he gives us. Often unspectacular, uh, down to earth, undramatic. uh, And yet the Lord sends us to do his work for his glory. A divine mandate. Moses sets out. And secondly, we see here a solemn warning. A solemn warning. At some point on the journey, we don't know exactly when it was, the Lord prepares Moses a bit more for the task that he's going to perform. See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you. Verse 21. Before Pharaoh. Ah, that hasn't been mentioned before. Before he'd been told, here are wonders to perform before the Israelites, the Hebrews, so that they will believe, uh, I have sent you. But now perform the wonders before Pharaoh. Did Moses know that before God told him on this occasion? Maybe it came as quite a surprise. You're not only going to perform the miracles before the Israelites, you're going to have to go to Pharaoh and perform the wonders there as well. And yet again, of course, it's with an assurance. Wonders I have given you the power to do. Even if it's in the royal court, even if it's before Pharaoh, the Lord has given Moses the miracles. He's given him the task. He's doing the Lord's work. And it's not the miracles that are the most important thing. We might immediately focus on them. The rod becoming a snake Uh, The hand that would be leprous and then it would be cured. Uh, The water from the Nile that would turn to blood. And those maybe are the things that we think of are really important. But they're not the most important thing. The most important thing is the message that Moses was given to take to Pharaoh. What is he to tell Pharaoh when he gets there? And it begins uh, very directly. Moses is bringing the Lord's demand Israel is my firstborn son. That's the first thing the Lord says. And Moses is to repeat to Pharaoh. Firstborn son. That's a striking description of the Lord's people. The firstborn son was the one who occupied the position of honor and respect and a place of warm intimacy. That's how the Lord thinks of these Israelites. 
with all their imperfections and their sins and the difficulties they're going to cause Moses, they are still God's firstborn son, the object of his covenant love. And then comes the command to Pharaoh. You can imagine Moses, shepherd in from Midian, standing before uh, the ruler of one of the, the great empires of the day and commanding him in the Lord's name, let my son go so that he may worship me. Let Israel go so that they may worship me. It comes with the absolute authority of the sovereign Lord. It's not some little nobody, some shepherd uh, from the back of beyond that's bringing this message. The Lord himself is commanding Pharaoh, let my son, let the Israelites go. Moses brings a message from a sovereign God. He speaks with absolute authority. And then we have a statement that is going to loom large in the next few chapters of Exodus. Once we get into the plagues of Egypt, Moses is to say in the Lord's name, I will harden his, that's Pharaoh's heart, so that he will not let the people go. I will harden his heart. That's a statement we're going to have to come back to before too long and look at a little more closely. God says he will harden Pharaoh's heart. That raises all kinds of questions. If the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he doesn't let the Israelites go, is Pharaoh to be blamed for not letting them go? Did the Lord not make him retain Israel in Egypt? And so there are big questions like that about Pharaoh's freedom and the Lord's sovereignty. Uh, and we'll come uh, to look at them in a later uh, study. But here the Lord is telling Moses something profound. The Lord raises many questions for us. It is fundamentally an assurance. One thing is clear. The Lord is in control of events in Egypt. Nothing is random. Nothing that will happen in Egypt will be outside the control of the Lord. We've said that there's a confrontation going to take place when Moses gets back to Egypt. The confrontation between the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt. And Pharaoh was counted as one of the gods. He was a descendant of the gods of Egypt. He, he was a sacred figure. And so what we have really is a confrontation between the true God and the idols of Egypt. That's what's going to be worked out in the next few chapters as plague after plague hits Egypt. The Lord is demonstrating that he is God and the idols of Egypt are useless. They can't protect the Egyptians. They can't stop the Lord doing what he wants to do. And in the confrontation between the divine Pharaoh, as he was thought of, and the living God, there's only one victor. There can only be one victor. It will be the Lord. And the whole contest is going to reach a climax when you get to plague number 10. Be one to nine every time Pharaoh says they're not going out. 
Sometimes he, he swithered, we might say, and he said, oh, they can go and then they can't go. But finally the tenth plague will come to it in chapter 12. And God says what's going to happen. Have it, verse 23. I will kill your firstborn son. The final plague will be the death of the firstborn in Egypt. And chapter 12, that is exactly what the Lord did. God is sovereign. That's why this is a solemn message. It's because a sovereign God is speaking. This is the God who's described in Romans 9 as a God who hardens whom he wants to harden. And that doesn't take away the sinner's uh, freedom of action. The sinner, like Pharaoh, will still be doing what a sinful heart wants. Pharaoh will not be compelled to do anything he doesn't want to do. And yet, God as judge is overruling and directing and even judicially hardening the heart of Pharaoh to fulfill God's purpose. There are mysteries, there are deep things uh, in what God does in Egypt that we need to think more about. But it is a solemn warning to Pharaoh, isn't it? To be confronted by Moses and Pharaoh's eyes a little nobody. And to be told that the God of Israel demands that his people be allowed to go. And if not, eventually, this God will take the life of Pharaoh's firstborn. This is no game. This is not playing. This is deeply serious. Moses comes with a solemn warning. So Moses is traveling back to Egypt. His wife, his two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, they're on their way back down to Egypt. And on the way, we have thirdly a strange encounter. A strange encounter. The course of the journey, and they stop uh, at an inn overnight, somewhere that was safe uh, to stay. And verses 24 and 25 and 26, we have one of the strangest episodes in the book of Exodus. It's one of those episodes, perhaps you read it, and you think, what is that about? Maybe you'll wonder, what is that doing in the Bible? Why is this here, this really odd episode? The Lord met Moses, probably doesn't name Moses. Probably it's Moses rather than his son. The Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. What's, what's going on here? What is the Lord doing? And you read and you see the issue was circumcision. Uh, and by some means, we're not told how, uh, the Lord makes it clear to Moses that he is seriously at fault. Moses is, we might say, out of line. Uh, maybe the Lord struck Moses with an illness. Uh, we don't know. Uh, it's not specified. But the Lord made it clear to Moses he has done something seriously wrong. And what is it? Well, uh, it is evident that one of his sons, probably the younger son, Eliezer, uh, has not been given the sign of covenant membership, the sign of circumcision. Uh, for whatever reason, and we don't know why, could it have been the influence of Zipporah, uh, the Midianite wife, uh, that perhaps 
She really wasn't keen on uh, circumcision for the sons. And the first one was circumcised and the second wasn't. That may be that. There are many unanswered questions. You can read different commentators uh, and they'll give you very different views. Uh, There are some who think Zipporah was a woman of faith who rebuked Moses. I don't think that is the case. It doesn't seem to me that that is what's happening. It seems really that Zipporah is hostile to the circumcision. She really doesn't want it, but feels forced by whatever has happened to Moses, God coming and threatening him. I think you see her hostility in that jibe to Moses. He's a bridegroom of blood. I don't think that's supportive for a voice of faith. I think what she did Uh, She did reluctantly, she didn't want to, but it did save Moses' life. And she acts in anger, I think, because uh, some of the translations say she touched uh, Moses' feet with the foreskin, but may well be she simply threw it at him. Uh, And that seems to be what is taking place here. But what does it mean? Even supposing we figure out what happened, what does it mean? Why is it in our Bible? What's the point Oh, but why as Christians are we uh, looking at something like this uh, in our study uh, of God's word? Well, remember the role that Moses was to fulfill as the leader of God's people. Moses really has the position of a mediator between God and the people. He stood in the middle as the mediator of God's covenant with Israel. And to be the mediator of God's covenant... Moses himself has to fulfill the demands of the covenant of God. He can't go to the Israelites and say, this is what God demands of you, if he isn't doing it himself. Of course, that's always the position in which the leaders of God's people find themselves. The danger of telling others to be doing something they're not doing themselves. And so here, Moses can't go down to the Israelites and talk about God's covenant, what God requires of you, and you must circumcise uh, the the covenant children. He hasn't done it himself. That, I think, is the issue that's going on here. Moses himself has to get his own house in order. Moses has to be fulfilling the requirements of the covenant that he's going to go and talk to the Israelites about. And ironically, it's through the agency of Zipporah, the Midianite wife, uh, that the circumcision is performed. So Moses is falling short uh, of what a leader of God's people should be. Moses is falling short of what he needs to be as a mediator. But even as we say that, and we see Moses' imperfections, we're reminded, are we not, that we have a mediator the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the the final perfect mediator between God and man, the one who is the agent of our salvation. He's our mediator. And he is the one who has done everything that's needed for salvation. He is the one who has obeyed God's law perfectly. Remember how Jesus went down to the Jordan to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was puzzled. He thought, this isn't right. Uh, You should be baptizing me. It's the wrong way around. You don't need to be baptized, Jesus. And Jesus answered Matthew 3.15, 
Let it be so now in order to fulfill all righteousness. To do everything required by God's law. And we have a mediator, the Lord Jesus, who's done everything to fulfill God's law in our place. Not only dying on the cross to pay for our sins, but living a life of perfect obedience that we couldn't live, that Moses couldn't live. Christ has done it in our place. And our mediator is perfect. And so even Moses' failures and imperfections point us forward to someone who was perfect and who never failed and obeyed God's law and as the mediator of the new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, one entirely free from all sin and all imperfection. There'll be times in Exodus when we'll see how Moses is like Christ. But there'll be times when we see that Moses falls short. And he is a sinner and he is imperfect. Remember, he lost his temper and he didn't enter the promised land. But we have a mediator who is perfect. The Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the law in our place in every detail. That is the point, I believe, of this strange encounter. Moses had to get his own spiritual house in order before he went down to lead the Israelites out. And we have a saviour, we have a mediator, the Lord Jesus, who is everything that Moses wasn't, and who is our great saviour. Strange encounter. And so they reach Egypt. And just finally, in a word, a positive beginning at the end of the chapter. There will be hard, difficult times. But it begins, well, the Lord keeps his promises, doesn't he? The Lord had said, Aaron will be your spokesman. And here we have Aaron sent to meet with Moses. He'll speak to the people for you, God had said, back in verse 16. And Moses and Aaron meet at Horeb. And the exodus really begins from this point onwards. He will say everything the Lord has sent Moses to say. And so they meet with the leaders. They sit down with the elders of Israel. Through Aaron, Moses tells them everything that God has said. The wonders are performed. And the elders believe. Imagine how Moses' heart, Aaron's heart, would have been lifted. Look, I've done what God told me. Uh, And it happens as the Lord has promised. They do believe that Moses has been sent by God. And when they hear about God's care for them, that God's watching over them, verse 31, that God's visiting them and he's going to take action on their behalf, what do they do? They bow their heads and they worship. It's exactly how they should respond. God has come through Moses. He's going to liberate you from Egypt. And their first reaction is to worship God. Not to congratulate Moses, not to say what a great fellow he is. They worship God. Now their response will be severely tested. There are going to be times when Moses leads them out, when they will rebel. There will be times when they don't believe Moses. And they don't believe God's word. But 
at the beginning at least, the Lord's preparing the way for a gracious deliverance. He will bring these people out with their failures and their sins and their rebellion and all the things about Israel uh, that, that drove Moses up the walls. God is going to deliver them. This is grace. Moses hasn't come to a gathering of people who deserve God to be kind to them. For God to deliver them. They don't deserve it. And that's the kind of God he is. They don't deserve deliverance any more than you and I deserve salvation. Because that's what all of this points to, of course. A God who saves the undeserving. The often ungrateful. And those who continue to, to fail him in many ways. And yet he is a gracious God. And a God who delivers a people for himself and makes them his people. Moses could lead Israel out of Egypt. We have a mediator, we have a saviour who's led us out of the bondage of sin and lostness. And it's in Christ, the Messiah, that we have the fulfilment of the exodus, liberation, new life, the promised land of salvation. He gets on with the job. That's Moses' calling, to go and do God's work. And Messiah Jesus did his Father's will perfectly. And we are part of the result. We are part of the people of God that he has saved for the glory of the God who sent him. We learn much about God's ways in Exodus 4. And God hasn't changed. He's the same gracious God. And when we hear how the Lord has worked for our deliverance, here is our response to bow our heads and worship. What a great God and what a great salvation.